Hello and welcome to a special edition of On Air with Myrick O'Connell, remembering Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Howard Kaplan. We're talking with Myrick O'Connell attorneys on key aspects of her legacy and what she meant to them as practicing attorneys. With me now is attorney Amanda Baer, a member of Myrick O'Connell's Labor, Employment, and Employee Benefits Group. Amanda will focus on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's landmark work involving discrimination on the basis of sex and the Constitution. So, Amanda, can you tell us about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legal education and early days? A lot of folks may not be too aware. Absolutely. It's very impressive. So she went to Harvard Law School. She was one of nine women in her class, and she was at the top of her class. Despite that, a very infamously, the dean asked her and one other female law student to explain to him why they took positions from qualified men who otherwise would have been in the class if it were not for them. So that, I think, really sparked a lot for her as far as, you know, recognizing uh, the great inequalities uh, within the legal system. She was married at that time. She actually had a, a daughter who is about two when she started law school. And her husband, when he graduated from Harvard Law School, he took a job in New York City. So she transferred to Columbia Law and graduated first in her class. How did Ruth Bader Ginsburg become involved in civil rights work and discrimination work? Well, after she graduated first in her class from Columbia, she still had a hard time finding a job, which is unbelievable because she was you know, graduated or went to Harvard, she went to Columbia, um, has a prestigious record, but she still couldn't find a job. And she was being passed over because she was a female. She eventually did clerk and she ultimately took a job as a law professor at Rutgers. And in 1972, she co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. And she did that as she was taking cases on referral from the ACLU regarding civil rights. So transitioning from that background, what was her first landmark case? The first major case that she argued on behalf of the ACLU was Reed versus Reed. And this was in 1971, and it was the first case to declare that the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex. And that case was major in that, you know, it was the first case to recognize that sex discrimination was unlawful. What happened in that case? That case was challenging a statute from Idaho when the probate courts were determining who should be the administrator of an estate, that preference should be automatically given to males over females. And Hmm. the state argued that that statute or rule was in the interest of the state because it allowed the probate court to expedite the administrations of the states rather than determining who would be the best administrator. You could just default to males. So the case arose when a adopted son whose parents were legally separated, uh, unfortunately committed suicide, and both the mother and the father petitioned to become the administrator of the estate. And when the court ruled that it should go to the father, the mother appealed and it reached the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ultimately struck down the provision which required the state court to select males over females. 
And the Supreme Court ruled that there's no basis for that provision. And and I think I think if I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of these laws were meant to quote unquote at the time protect women. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg really almost took it upon herself to ensure that there should be equal treatment under the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause, and other laws. Yes, absolutely. And she did it in a very creative way that allowed her to be successful. And what she would do is she would bring these cases on behalf of men who were harmed by these laws that actually were unfair to women. It's very interesting. In one case, the Weinberger case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually brought the case on behalf of a husband. So that case challenged the Social Security Act, which permitted widows, so female widows, but not male widowers to collect benefits uh, when caring for minor children. And at bottom, what that act did was it valued the contributions of male workers over the contributions of female workers. And in so doing, denied the spouses of female workers benefits, if that makes sense. Um, So what she did is she, she brought this act on behalf of a male widower who was not entitled to the same level of protections and benefits as female widows. And that was, you know, really interesting way to bring about this inequality to the court's attention, doing it on behalf of a male who is being unfairly disadvantaged because of these laws that valued women less than men. And so I think that was, you know, really groundbreaking, very insightful on her behalf to take that approach because, you know, then the predominantly male Supreme Court would feel more empathy for the male plaintiff and see how the law could be unfair through that lens. It really did have the effect of helping women. Right. And these are just some cases where Ruth Bader Ginsburg was really clever and very patient. Yes, absolutely. She's very innovative, very patient. And not patient like she would, you know, allow herself to be steamrolled, but just she persevered, I think is a better term. Yes. And she's a role model for everyone. Joining me now is Myrick O'Connell attorney, Jessica Murphy, who practices in the firm's litigation group. Jess will discuss Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy of dissenting while on the U.S. Supreme Court. So what do we mean by that? If you could just tell us a little bit more about her history of dissents. Well, United States Supreme Court cases are decided by a simple majority. So any decision coming out of that court needs to be joined by five of the nine justices in order to be the court's ruling. And as a liberal judge, Justice Ginsburg often found herself in a minority on the decision. Being in the minority and authoring a dissent opinion is actually not where law is made. And as most attorneys, I understand she would rather have won and been on the deciding factor of the cases. But Justice Ginsburg had a belief that good dissents could become law in the future. A great example and one of her most uh, notorious dissents is in the 2007 case of Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire. Lily Ledbetter had sued her employer for an employment discrimination case based on being paid less than her male colleagues. The United States Supreme Court majority held that she had brought her complaint more than 180 days after each act of discrimination and found that her claim was time barred. 
And in a rare move, Justice Ginsburg gave an oral dissent from the bench. She started with an unusual criticism of her fellow justices in saying that, quote, the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious ways in which women can be victims of pay discrimination, close quote. She had laid bare her belief that the male justices of the court could not understand the position of Lily Ledbetter and what it was like to be a woman in a man's world. But as the second female on the court after Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and the only female member for many years and at the time of this case, she did uniquely understand. And she brought that important perspective into her voice on the court. Her hope that dissents could be law in the future was borne out in this case when the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was passed several years after the court's decision, which provided a legislative solution to the court's ruling. I understand Justice Ginsburg was extremely proud of this and had a framed copy of the act hanging in the wall in her office until her passing. Hmm. This is just one of the examples of how she used a dissent to educate and to reach people on issues that unfortunately she was not in the majority on. And this is not the only example where there was other um, action taken later on in reliance on her dissent and the position she put forward there. What is her overall legacy of dissent, do you think? I think it's the idea of her dissent that's most prolific. The idea that, as she said, we should fight for the things that we care about, but to do so in a way that will lead others to join you. It is her idea and her inspiration that you can be true to yourself and your beliefs, to stand up, voice your disagreement or dissent, and actually create change. When she passed, when she was 87, there was a lot of weight put on the shoulders of this petite but incredibly powerful woman. It started, though, much smaller, and each act of disagreement and resistance to the status quo led to this legacy of dissent. One of the things she said, which I thought was incredibly powerful, is the answer to the question, when will there be enough women on the court? And her answer was often quoted in saying when there are nine, that people are shocked that there have been nine men and nobody's ever raised a question about that. Yeah. And it was a simple but profound statement that has dissented from the idea of a male-centric court, but done so in a calm and compelling way. And I think, Howard, that her legacy of dissent goes beyond just the legal dissent and opinions. There's a wonderful children's book, I Dissent, that my daughter has. Hmm. My daughter and hundreds of other, thousands of other children dressed up like Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the last few years. And I expect we'd see more of those this year as Halloween costumes. Um, it is outreach um, to children in that way who find her inspiring. Her dissent collar worn when she would join in the dissent on decisions, uh, appears in art, on t-shirts, and today even masks. So I think her legacy of dissent is really inspiring people to compromise where they can, but where they can't to stand up, to disagree without being disagreeable if you can, and to persevere and represent yourselves and resist for others. What does Justice Ginsburg mean to you personally as an attorney? I had the opportunity to meet her in March of 2019 when I was sworn into the United States Supreme Court bar, along with alumni from Suffolk Law School. Hmm. It was an amazing experience. Uh, she came and spoke to us. And uh, being in her presence, having a chance to see her, I was fortunate enough. She read two decision summaries from the bench uh, on the admission date. 
Uh, it was incredible. Uh, she is a true inspiration to me. She has an exceptional legal mind. She's an engaging and wonderful writer. She has broken barriers throughout her entire life. Um, and she's tireless in the pursuit of justice for everyone. I think that uh, has really impacted me. And knowing that she considered herself to really have taken things one step at a time. I don't think she considered herself necessarily uh, the notorious RBG image that people have. Um, but in fact, she really is that persona for other people. And that's a wonderful legacy. Um, for me, it, it was a true honor to just be in her presence, having had a chance to meet her. And I will continue to be inspired by her long after she's passed. Joining us now as we remember Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Myrick O'Connell attorney Lauren Sparks, who practices in the firm's litigation group. What impact did Justice Ginsburg have on you as an attorney? Well, for me, I think the greatest impact that she had actually started before I became an attorney. I went to law school in DC and I went to Georgetown Law and uh, Justice Ginsburg, who at various points in her life had been a professor, uh, graced us with her presence a, a few times throughout my law school experience and interacting with her or wa watching her speak as a law student had a profound impact on me. I, of course, was familiar with uh, some of her famous dissents and opinions that she had written, but to see her speak and talk about her experiences, particularly her early days as a civil rights attorney, really made a difference for me because at that point in my life, I hadn't experienced some of the sexism that is rampant in the legal profession and hearing her talk about some of the struggles that she faced as a younger attorney made me really appreciate all the more the work that she ended up doing later on in her career, and particularly as a justice. Now, how did you react to the news of her death? Well, I think that as somebody who was profoundly influenced by her and inspired by her, I was of course, devastated to hear the news. I We were all aware that she was not in the best of health. She was, of course, elderly at this point. And although I shouldn't have been surprised, it really shocked me. And just given the climate of everything that we're going through as a country, a time of great transition and division, it felt like a deeply personal loss to me. And many of my uh, friends and fellow Georgetown law students still live in DC. So I decided to fly down and pay my respects in person and to the extent that I could. So that's what I did. I bought a ticket. Prices are great right now, by the way, and <laughs> flew down. Well, oh my goodness. So what was being in DC during this time like? It was really an amazing experience because so many people it felt like we were sharing this collective grief at her loss, but also it was not as somber as I would have expected. People showing up outside of the Supreme Court, leaving messages and flowers, it all sort of made me feel very hopeful because that somebody who stood for what she stood for would have this kind of 
impact on people. And it was not a politicized thing. It was truly just Americans coming together to honor somebody who served our country for so many years. And it was great to be able to reminisce about our personal interactions with her, with some of my friends. And one of my law school colleagues recalled asking her a question. She spoke to our graduating class and was discussing, again, she really focused on her days as a a newer attorney sort of to connect with us, I think. And one of my colleagues had asked her, if you were a younger attorney now, what causes would you champion and what types of cases would you want to be trying as an attorney? And she was very clear that she loved and valued our democracy and our court system. But her message was, we don't start with the courts. We start with changing public opinion. And you don't need to be a lawyer to do that. You can be anybody. And you work on changing public opinion. And then you take that cause to the legislature. You keep building and building that momentum. And only then does the court really step in and make some of the decisions that it's able to make. And that was really profound because it's opening up this conversation to people who aren't necessarily lawyers or even politically active, but just average citizens or people living here that care about causes. And right now, during such a difficult time for our country, that message really resonated. And just remembering her message that we all have a part that we can play really meant a lot to me and to be reminded of her. Uh, She was somebody that certainly didn't have to spend time with young law students. She was a great legal thinker, a celebrity in her later years, but she took the time out of her schedule to come and connect with us and remind us that it doesn't just take lawyers to do this work, it takes everybody. And in that way, I think even though she's known as a great dissenter, she was also somebody who could draw people in and open up our democracy to everybody. Un moto di gioia mi sento nel rito, che annunzi la terra con il mezzo del timor. Speriamo che in contento finisca la panno, non sempre, non sempre ti rano. Il facto è d'amor, il facto è d'amor. Un moto di gioia mi sento nel petto, che annunzio terra con il mezzo del timor. That was Un Moto de Joya, sung by Grace Russler, one of Myrick O'Connell's family law attorneys. So Grace, I have to ask you, why sing that piece for us right now? <laughs> so, um, hi, Howard. Thank you so much for having me. That aria is from Mozart's opera, The Marriage of Figaro. And it's relevant today because it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's favorite opera. That's right. Wow, you can sing, Grace. I just have to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my goodness. So what does un moto de joya mean? Well, the literal translation is an emotion of joy I feel in my breast, although most English translations, if you go to the show, will say an emotion of joy I feel. Um, And I think that the piece really pays a tribute to RBG. Uh, I sung it when I was young, um, and when I learned that it was from one of her favorite operas, I thought it was very appropriate to sing in her honor. (laughs) 
Let's talk a little bit about this in terms of RBG's obsession. I mean, she loved opera. She did, very much so. Um, She was a huge fan of the opera, of music, and really the arts in general. You know, I think it's funny. She did many interviews um, before she passed, and she disclosed that she sang in the shower. She, in the evenings, she would watch Live at the Met Opera on TV. She lived next door, practically, to the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., and she very frequently attended the operas there. She actually made several appearances herself on stage during her lifetime. The last time, actually, was in 2016, when she wrote her own lines um, in a particular opera. Uh, There even is an opera about her. It's called Scalia Ginsburg, which debuted in July of 2015 and talks about the relationship between the two, the differences in opinions that they had. It's comical, but obviously, as every comedy shows, there is some truth behind, uh, behind the lines, of course. How did her love of opera and the arts resonate with you personally? Well, you know, Howard, I'm a singer. I've been singing since I was five. Music has always been a part of my life. And RBG believed, and so do I, that I think music serves two purposes. The first is just enjoyment and a release. Uh, which specifically, I think a lot of lawyers need. I think everyone needs it, but certainly when you're in when yes. you're in um, you know intense jobs, doctors, lawyers, you know people are depending on you, and it can be stressful. And so music is a release from some of that tension of your job. RBG told AARP in an interview that she usually would go to bed thinking about law and legal questions. But when she watched the opera, she would get lost in it. And I think that is what most importantly music does and the opera did for her. And that's what music does for me. The second way that music resonated with her was that music was a medium for telling truth, to share values and to create empathy for others. She had an ability to showcase her empathy, her love, her compassion on and off the court she believed the Constitution should serve and include all people. Music is often a way to include others and showcase differences. You know, you have all sorts of different music that people can enjoy and learn from. And opera was no different. She talked about sharing the experience of opera with her children at very young ages and others. And as I mentioned before, Justice Scalia, who They were absolute opposites on the court, but they both obsessed over opera, and it was something that brought them together. Grace, what will you miss most about her? You know, aside from her amazing legal mind and being a true fighter for equality, she was a patron of the arts. We really need those patrons right now. Broadway is closed until mid-next year. Yeah. All the concerts were canceled. Yeah. Um, group choral singing is not recommended because of the hazards of COVID-19. You know, RBG served as a reminder that we need to support our arts during this time, however we can. The more people of influence that respect and treasure the arts, the more likely we are to have music and theater as an outlet for everyone. And I think that RBG would appreciate that and she would want people to carry on 
her mission of sharing the art. So in honor um, of her, I guess I would challenge others to continue to support the arts during this very difficult time and to continue to promote music as a way to relax, number one, and also to learn and appreciate others and other people's differences because I think music really has that capacity if you just close your eyes and listen. You've really packed into a very short period of time here not only your singing virtuosity, if I can use that word. I mean, you're, you're a brilliant singer. That, that was amazing. Thank you. And, and thank you for allowing me to share my little bit of the talent with you today. As you know, because all of the choral groups have essentially shut down, we have not been able to practice. So it's been a while since I sang. I do. I sing with the Harvard Radcliffe Chorus generally but pre-COVID. So I think we're all very excited, hopefully, about the upcoming year. And I think that we all want to salute RBG in our own way. And I hope that this was a good tribute to her. With me now is attorney Fern Frolin, a family law attorney who practices at Myrick O'Connell. Fern, uh, Justice Ginsburg's professional life was greatly influenced by her travel to Sweden in 1962. Why did she go there? Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg went for the purpose of writing a book on civil procedure in Sweden. It was part of a series on civil procedure that Columbia University Law School was doing in various countries. And I think that part of her interest in this was that as a woman, it was difficult for her to find employment as an attorney. And so she was turning to academics, and civil procedure is the lawyer's law. It's the rules of the court and how the court functions. So I think this was part of her academic interest, and she learned Sweden, Swedish before she went so, so that she would be able to converse in Sweden. And she co-wrote the book with a very well-known Swedish judge. His name was Andres Brasilius. And it was published in 1966. And how did that experience influence her thinking on all this? Enormously. And every time that she appeared in public, especially before women, she liked to talk about her Swedish adventure being the catalyst for turning her professional and academic interest from the procedures, the lawyer's law and the rules of the court, to equal rights, and particularly equal rights by gender and women's rights, but she also fought for men's rights. And I think that all occurred to her, or if it had occurred to her before, it gelled by her Swedish experience. When she got to Sweden, she saw that there were female doctors and lawyers in all professions women were represented, that the government provided daycare for children who enabled both parents to work outside the home, and that women had all the same opportunities that men had for advancement, for income, for social respect, and for professional respect. I think it it made her recognize how very different that was from her experience in the United States, particularly because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was first in her class at Cornell and first in her class at Columbia Law School. And while her male counterparts were getting job offers, she was not. So I think it really struck a chord with her. She saw how different it could be. 
Women's reproductive rights in America happened to be in the news in Sweden while Ruth Ginsburg was there. What happened to influence her perspective? A woman from Arizona whose name was Sherry Fishbein traveled from Arizona where she was unable to get a lawful abortion to Sweden where she could get a legal abortion. Ms. Fishbein wanted an abortion because she had taken thalidomide and had a high risk of having a child with severe birth defect. And the newspapers in Switzerland covered profusely the difference between women's reproductive rights in the United States, where legal abortion was not available, and rights in Sweden and perhaps some other progressive countries where women and their doctors could make that decision. Justice Ginsburg was really struck by what a difference it made in women's lives, in the way they could pursue their careers or make other decisions, and in their in the respect for their medical and personal intelligence and integrity. And I think that drove a lot of her interest in women's rights, but particularly women's reproductive rights, as well as workforce and uh, equal dignity. What overall, Fern, was the effect of her Swedish experience on her career? I, I think profoundly it directed her to become a director of the board of directors of the American Civil Liberties Union and through the Civil Liberties Union to argue at the Supreme Court and eventually write decisions at the Supreme Court that were directed toward gender and eventually racial equality as well on behalf of women and men. And I think the foundation came from her Swedish experience. I know that it was important to her throughout her life. Talking with us now is Myrick O'Connell partner Elizabeth Green. Elizabeth is a member of the firm's litigation and health law groups. She'll be chatting with us about Justice Ginsburg's family life. Elizabeth, where we come from, our upbringing often impacts our lives in different ways. Can you tell us about RBG, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's upbringing and its influence on her life? Sure. Um, this is this project that uh, we're doing as a group has been very interesting to me, and I've done a lot of reading over the last several days from a variety of sources, and I've learned a lot in reading these different things. What I was really struck by was that RBG's childhood was very interesting, and her mother was a very powerful force in her life. Her mother, Cecilia Amster Bader, seems to have uh, been a brilliant woman, just like her daughter, RBG. And she was the, f- the firstborn child in uh, an Australian Jewish immigrant family. And she really instilled in her daughter, Ruth, the love of learning um, and the importance of learning. There's a Washington Post article which references uh, Ginsburg's excelling in school, both academically and socially, and talks about how her mother wanted her daughter to go further in school than her mother, Celia, had been allowed to do. And her mother would save portions of the money that her husband gave her every week for a secret college fund for Ruth. And she taught Ruth that two things were particularly important. One was to be a lady, which meant to Celia that 
you were to conduct yourself civilly and to not let emotions like anger or envy get in the way. And the other thing that she taught her daughter, Ruth, was to be independent, which at the time was an unusual message for mothers to be giving to their daughters. Mother was diagnosed with cervical cancer while Ruth was growing up. And though Ruth was the valedictorian and top of her class in high school, her mother died the day before her graduation. And so she was not at her own high school graduation. She was, however, inspired tremendously throughout her life by her mother. The funds that her mother had saved for college over the years from that uh, savings of what her husband gave her was $8,000, which in today's times was $86,000. And it turned out that uh, Ruth didn't need that money because she was awarded a full scholarship to Cornell, which was the same school that her mother had worked to put her uncle through. Ruth talked later in her life. She said, I pray that I may be all that she would have been had she lived in an age when women could aspire and achieve and daughters are cherished as much as sons. And I personally find that remark so interesting. Ruth attended Cornell University, and that's where she met her husband and the love of her life, Marty, who was a huge champion of hers. And she attended law school starting in 1955, and she was one of nine student, women students in her law school class. My grandmother was one of the first women to attend law school and was one of a similar number of women in her law school class at the New Jersey uh, School of Law, graduating in 1927. It's fascinating to me when I was reading about the struggles that Ruth had after graduating at the top of her class from Columbia. She attended Harvard Law School with her husband, but then attended the ending of her law school at Columbia and graduated from Columbia Law School. And even after graduating at the top of her class, she struggled in finding positions to practice law. And back in 1927 and 1928, when my grandmother came out of law school, she and her husband, they met and attended law school together. And similarly, she was not permitted to practice law. She couldn't get her law license and she wasn't allowed to appear before the judges in court in New Jersey. And so she was in the background of my grandfather's law practice. I'm told the brains behind the scene. Um, (laughs) And I was fascinated in reading about Ruth's story and the, the path that Ruth has paved for all of us that I think was really started many, many years before by people like my grandmother who attended law school in the late 1920s. And yet it seems that the path is very long and the road moves very slowly when you can reflect on your grandmother who couldn't do certain things as a lawyer, being a brilliant woman. And and Ruth, when she first came out, also having limitations in what she was permitted to do and able to do in her practice. And yet she, similar to my grandmother, didn't let anything stop her and really paved the way for so many of us today to do what we do uh, as, as women and as lawyers and as mothers and as lawyers. And I am so grateful to my grandmother and also very much to Ruth Bader Ginsburg for everything that she did, um, 
and has done for women in law and for all of us. This is an amazing story, actually both stories that you just told of. I wanted to just ask you also, it is often said that the RBG story is a love story. Can you tell us about what that means exactly? The other part of Ruth's story that really um, makes me smile, she and her husband fell in love as undergraduates at Cornell. Her husband's name was Marty. He was also a lawyer and and a very well-accomplished and brilliant man. But when they were undergrads at Cornell, his roommate set him up on a blind date with Ruth. And their son is reported to have told People magazine that he thought she was awfully cute. And then he noticed she was awfully smart. Ruth would later say that Marty was the only young man that she dated who cared that she had a brain. I found it interesting and inspiring in reading that Ruth and her husband both committed to one another that both of their careers would matter and that neither of them seemed to stand in the other's way. And so even as children came into the picture and as cancer diagnoses came into the picture because Marty was diagnosed with testicular cancer when they were in law school. The two of them seemed to work as a team, supporting one another in the most equitable of ways that was really an unusual thing at that time. And they were married in 1954, uh, shortly after they graduated from Cornell. And so if you just think about the world at that time, it really was an unusual relationship and a very special relationship that they had. And he was one of her biggest champions and was a tremendous force in the background in advocating for her with regard to her getting her seat on the Supreme Court. She was certainly qualified for it, but there were a lot of discussions and conversations and whatnot that seem from my reading to have gone on behind the scenes She had once said that she, obviously, it wouldn't be appropriate for her to advocate for herself in that realm, but he could do that on her behalf and did do that on her behalf. And in reading about the two of them, the love that they had for one another and the respect that they had for one another is something very, very special and important, I think, for all of us to be aware of and and to look to uh, as inspirational. Absolutely. If I may have just one more moment. Sure. Uh, Ruth was a Jewish woman, and her Jewishness um, was very important to her. And, you know, over the years, she spoke of that. After she passed away, there is a, a writer named Molly Conway who shared a post on Facebook. And I was very moved by the post that she shared. For those who don't know, Ruth passed away on the first night of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. It's supposed to be a time of great joy, and yet I had a very heavy heart entering the new year, uh, as did many, because Ruth had passed away. And then I saw this post, and I just want to share with you just a piece of it. It is said that a person who passes on Rosh Hashanah is a sadik, a good and righteous person. When we speak of a sadik, the word is often translated as charity but it is more accurately to say it is righteousness. It can take many forms, but it is important to note that staka is not a benevolent contribution given to be kind or nice for those who need it. It is to be viewed as balancing the scales and active working towards justice. She goes on to say, say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a sadik, 
we don't just mean that she was a nice person. What we're saying is that she was a thoughtful person who worked tirelessly to create a more just world, one that would perpetuate equality and access, one that wasn't reliant on charity, one that was better for people she did not know without the expectation of praise or fame. That is what it means to be a Sadiq. And I can't think of anyone who better embodies the pursuit of justice. She closes what she wrote with, may her memory be for a blessing, may her memory be for revolution, may we become a credit to her name. And I just want to close my comments to you by saying how inspired I was by what Molly Conway wrote about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and also that I share in her feelings that may we all be inspired to be our better and our best selves by the example that Ruth Bader Ginsburg left for us. With us now is Myrick O'Connell attorney Ashley Coffey. Ashley practices in the firm's Land Use and Environmental Law Group and the Public and Municipal Law Group. Ashley, how did Justice Ginsburg inspire you as a fellow woman attorney? Uh, Well, that list could probably be pretty extensive, but I'd say that I found her work ethic, her drive, and her overall commitment to the justice system in general to be most inspirational. I mean, since the day she stepped foot into law school, Ruth Bader had the mentality that no one was going to stop her from accomplishing her goals. I mean, she's been mocked and even chatted for pursuing a degree and a profession predominantly made up of males, but I don't think that ever discouraged her. Uh, She just kept pushing on, which I think is so inspiring to everyone. And for me, I've kind of always reminded myself to work as hard as I can in every aspect of life, and that if I want something bad enough to work hard and go get it. And I think Ruth Bader's mindset was very similar, and it's encouraging to see how far somebody can go with that type of mindset and drive. She was also, I'm sure as you know, a working mom and an extremely devoted wife. I actually remember in one of her documentaries, she and her children reminisced about her long work days to the point where her husband had to physically go and drag her out of the courthouse in the office so that she could go home and have dinner. (laughs) So she was an absolute powerhouse and workhorse. And while those long, long work hours aren't ideal, it's just that type of work ethic and dedication that's inspiring for everyone and shows how committed she was to the justice system. She didn't want to put in half effort, and I think a lot of people can learn from that in order to be successful in their daily lives, both personally and professionally. And while she worked so hard, she was still the backbone of her family. She had a great husband who helped out a lot with their kids, but she was just as committed to being a good mom and a role model to her children, just as she was to her career. And for me, as a working mom, and as many other of the uh, working moms in our firm and community in general, I think we can all relate to that. You know, we all want to be the best moms and partners and wives that we can be while also being successful in our professions. Do you think, Ashley, that Justice Ginsburg has had a similar impact on other women and girls in society in general? Absolutely. I mean, not only for women and young girls, but for everyone, including members of the LGBTQ community. I'm sure, as most people know, uh, Ruth Bader became a huge pop culture icon over the past 10 years or so. She was known for uh, her powerful dissents and her commitment to fighting for gender equality, which ultimately led to her becoming known as her alter ego, the notorious RBG. 
Yes. Which was yes. In, in comparison to the rapper Notorious B.I.G., which I'm sure everyone knows. But not only that, she also appeared in movies, Saturday Night Live skits, where, where Kate McKinnon portrayed her. Yeah. Children's books, documentaries, and I think even an opera cameo or two. So yeah, I think she has been an inspiration to everyone. And I think everyone can learn a little bit something from her or learn a little bit of something from her. One of my favorite sayings that she said was, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And I think that's just so perfect because in the world today where everybody is disagreeing on politics and there's different stances on gender and ethnicity, I just think everyone should focus on being a leader to make this world and country a better place. And she did it. She was very good friends with Justice Scalia, who was total opposite end of the political views as she was. And they still were able to respect each other. And I think more people could be like that these days. For sure. Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and rest in peace to an amazing woman. With me now is Myrick O'Connell attorney Patricia Davidson. Patricia is a partner in the Probate Trust and Fiduciary Litigation Group and the Business and General Litigation Group. Trish, what about Justice Ginsburg's legacy have you been pondering in the aftermath of her death? Justice Ginsburg's recognition of the need for civility when trial to reconcile differences of opinion really resonates with me. Not only considering all the contention in the world today among popular discourse, but also in my role as a litigator. I spend each day, after all, uh, trying to solve problems. Justice Ginsburg wrote and spoke so many powerful words. Her words throughout her career have so much to teach us even now. And what I'd like to do, Howard, is share some of those words with you. This is a very trying issue for our time, the individual's right to be free and the individual's respect for others. One hopes that we can reason together and get the message of mutual respect across to our young people. And that was at her confirmation hearing in 1993. Back in 1946, she wrote, There can be a happy world, and there will be once again when men create a strong bond towards one another, a bond unbreakable by a studied prejudice or a passing circumstance. I have to think more recently, she would say, when men and women create a strong bond. Also at her confirmation hearings in 1993, she spoke, The message of the First Amendment is tolerance of speech, not the speech we agree with, but the speech we hate. And at Columbia Law School in 2012, she said, Don't take no for an answer, but also don't react in anger. Regard every opportunity, every encounter, as an opportunity to teach someone. And finally, what I think resonates with all of us on this podcast, in 2015 at Georgetown, she said, I got the idea that being a lawyer is a pretty good thing, because in addition to practicing a profession, you could do some good for your society, make things a little better for other people. That was Patricia Davidson, partner at Myrick O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this special edition of On Air with Myrick O'Connell, remembering Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Howard Kaplan. Take care and stay safe.
This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. (laughs) 